Value Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Hello and welcome to the Asian Banker Radio Finance. Today we'll be turning to our expert panel of economists and industry experts to look at the key issues and factors that will affect the global economy, financial systems, and specifically how banking system in Asia Pacific will perform over the next 12 months. We are happy to have as our guest today, Alicia Garcia Herrero, the Chief Economist for Asia Pacific at French Investment Bank, Natasis. Tamil Beck, who hates economics as well as macro strategy for interest rate, credit, currency and equities at DBS Group Research. Bert Hoffman is the director of the East Asian Institute and professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School at the National University of Singapore. He was formerly with the World Bank as chief economist in East Asia and Pacific and country director for China. Next, we have Eugene Tasimanov, who is the Senior Credit Officer responsible for the Financial Institution Group at Moody's Investor Service. And finally, Oleg Pasiansky, who leads BPC Banking Technologies Digital Banking Division, and he's responsible for designing future digital banks. We are going out live on Zoom, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and we would like this to be an interactive session. If you have any questions for any of our guests, please use the chat or raise hand functions on Zoom and comment function on Facebook and LinkedIn, and we'll address them during the course of the discussion. The world starts 2022, the third year in a row, it finds itself still in the throes of the COVID pandemic, and economic prospects appear to be gloomier than before. The prospect of a global coordinated stimulus and vaccination lab rebound in 2021 was short-lived, scattered by the emergence of new and more virulent variants of the virus and a full-blown pandemic resurgence. In many instances, conditions at the end of 2021 were worse than at the start of the year. Hospitalization and deaths from Delta exceeded 2020's tally. Social distancing measures became more restrictive. Trade and supply chains bottleneck persisted and domestic social and political order deteriorated as inequality in income and economic opportunities widened. Aggressive fiscal stimulus and easy monetary policies funded by government deficits have increased public debts and fuel asset prices and inflationary pressures. More significantly, it has limited government's policy room to do more to drive growth in 2022 and beyond, especially for less developed economies. Externally, geopolitical tensions between the United States and China, as well as Russia and the West escalated noticeably into 2021, weighing on global business confidence and investor sentiment. Growth in developed and advanced economies, in particular, the US and European Union reversed trend in the second half of 2021 lowering demand for products from emerging and developing economies in Asia Pacific and the rest of the world. The World Bank expects global growth to slow markedly from 5.5% in 2021 to 4.1% in 2022 as the buildup of demands evaporates and fiscal and monetary support starts to unwind around the world. 
This slowdown is accompanied by increasing divergence in growth rates between advanced economies and emerging and developing economies. Growth in advanced economies is expected to slow from 5% in 2021 to 3.8% in 2022, still sufficient to sustain output and investments to pre-pandemic level. However, in emerging and developing economies, growth is expected to fall more precipitously from 6.3% in 2021 to 4.6% in 2022. Growth in East Asia and Pacific is expected to grow to slow to 5.1% in 2022 in tandem with the deceleration in China's growth. However, South Asian economies, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan in particular, are expected to see a pickup in growth to 7.6%. Now, turning to our panel expert, the World Bank has struck a gloomier tone in its 2022 Global Prospect Report, citing many downside risks. It is obviously pessimistic about recovery and growth in 2022, especially for East Asia and Pacific. I'd like to get our guests' views of how you see the pace of economic recovery in Asia Pacific, the prospect of bringing COVID-19 under control, and a possible financial market, a black swan event in 2022. Uh, let's start with Alicia to give us her take of APEC growth and risk this year. Alicia, you're warning banks to exercise caution as we enter 2022. Could you elaborate? Well, it's always nice to be cautious, uh, but, you know, we've been uh, through a pandemic for two years, so I'm going to bring a little bit of light to this cautiousness. Uh, as much as I am always rather uh, negative on, on, on issues, so but I'm going to try very hard to, to, to bring some light here. And, and the first thing to realize is that uh, we're in a different cycle in Asia as opposed to um, the developed world. And I'm going to exclude China for a second now, because I think in that case, we are indeed in that very same deceleration mode as the U.S. Uh, at Notexis, we're actually quite unconstructive on the U.S. because we have growth uh, as uh, low as 3% in 2022 and not as hawkish on the Fed as the market to the point of no rate uh, increases in this year, which is you mm. know, not my call, but it's the bank's call and it's, it's, it's quite a contrarian one. Meaning, mm. and this is the key, that uh, from the US do not expect major demand or anything. And that's important for Asia. But, but mm. I think Europe is, is less uh, um, you know, in, in this, uh, this uh, deceleration mode yet because we have a lot of money coming from the next generation fund. And then we get to Asia. China decelerating, but clearly, yeah, the PBOC reminded us today again that it, the PBOC is ready to help. And I think we already heard about this magnificent, although already well-known, um, uh, stimulus based on, you know, uh, high-speed trains and, and you name it, so infrastructure. Mm. Uh, so I think China will decelerate, but not massively. We still have 5.2% there. Yep. APA, I mean, the rest of APAC, I think we need to realize that ASEAN did poorly uh, in the second half of 2021. So we should see a recovery if, my, if Omicron is, is a moderate risk, which I think it will be eventually. I don't think we'll go back to full lockdowns, except greater China. That's a different topic. So on, in that regard, um, 
I'm constructive on growth for APAC. I think that's good news. I don't think the Fed will be as hawkish as the market is discounting already six uh, uh, rate hikes in between 2022 and three, four and two. Uh, but what does this mean for the banking sector? I want to get there and I stop there. Well, first of all, as long as growth remains moderate in China, rather strong up in, in ASEAN, we should not see a massive increase in credit risk, which is good news for banks. And at the same time, because inflation is not hugely important in Asia compared to the US or even Europe, I think real rates will remain decent. I mean, maybe high, slightly higher, but what the, the biggest we have is uh, 100 basis points in, in ASEAN, and we saw 75 in South Korea. I mean, it's not massive. I don't think anybody's going to go beyond the Fed, to be frank. So in that regard, I, I can't think of a terrible scenario for, for Asia, to be frank, and for the banking sector, not even for the banking sector, because credit risk should be moderate, and you will have a little bit of space with the higher high interest rates that you didn't have in 2021. So that's my call, except China. Remember that China is actually going in the other direction you know, on rates. And that's a little bit of a problem for China's banking sector because the margin has been shrinking. Uh, but other than that, uh, rather constructive. Yeah. Yes, that, that's rather uh, uh, optimistic for, for the sector in, uh, in Asia. And uh, well, uh, on the rates, especially uh, not that hawkish on the, the US rates. Okay, uh, let's hear from Tamu. Tamu has kind of spoken uh, or written about specific risk in the asset market, in particular, uh, correction in China, and also about the high, the high public cost of the pandemic, uh, increasing public debt burden of dealing with COVID. Uh, tell us more, Tamu. Uh, about this Thank you. One thing, great to be here with you again. Good to see you and some of my colleagues uh, on the screen right now. Uh, welcome to the uh, webinar participants. I'm really glad Alicia went first and gave her rather starkly counter consensus view uh, because I have to take the other side. Uh, nobody wants to be part of consensus, but there's somebody in there, right? And I am one of those people. Uh, no, we are looking at a series of rate hikes in the US, not just around the inflation dynamic, which we think is actually of secondary concern because that will fade in the second half of the year, but more about the Fed's view on the employment picture, the wage picture, the output gap, where the real interest rates should be at a cycle uh, phase like this. So based on that, it is very clear from the Fed governor and they communicate a lot, right? We don't have to guess what they're saying. We know where they stand. They're not only thinking about three rate hikes this year, they're thinking about quantitative tightening, which entails selling assets, taking the cash into the banking, uh, central banking ledger, bank's ledger, and retiring it, right? So people don't realize that the opposite of QE is not just selling assets as opposed to buying assets, because mm -hmm. those assets were bought with money printing, and now that money will be actually electronically destroyed, if you will. So we think all of those things are on board, and uh, this is a remarkable turnaround in the tone of Fed officials from even six months ago, when they were thinking about rate hike, not till the end of 2022, perhaps even in 2023, let alone mm. thinking about quantitative tightening, they probably felt that they could just get away with very large balance sheet staying there. Maybe incrementally it doesn't grow up, but that they would have to think about quantitative tightening for a long time. All of those things are on the board on the table now. Mm. Uh, consequently, just the 
fact that they have put these things on the table and the fact that they are talking about it already has started accomplishing their objective. Curves are steepening. We're beginning to see uh, the dollar beginning to strength against emerging market currencies. And around that narrative, we will see a broad range of implications for emerging markets, including China. Uh, currency weakness, in my view, whether in the RMB space or in Sing dollar space is the order of the day in a year when the Fed would be hiking. Asian central banks will not match one for one the Fed's moves. They will do a little bit reluctantly. Nobody is in particular hurry to raise rates in Asia unless their currency is under threat, unless their external stability is under threat. They will try to do as little as possible. Having said all that, just a couple of hours ago, we heard Bank Indonesia, as Alicia pointed out, China is going in one direction, rate cuts, reserve requirement cuts. Indonesia is following the global queue. They're talking about becoming hawkish. They're talking about raising reserve requirement. And ultimately they will talk about raising interest rates. When the RBI meets in two weeks time, they'll do the same. When MAS meets in two months time, they'll do the same or three months time. So we are at a very interesting juncture, which is a year characterized by fairly high commodity prices and rising interest rates in the United States ought to be a very, very difficult year for Asia. Typically, that means pressure on currency, uh, pressure on capital inflows, and so on. But it did not be the case. And that's my key point. The reason the Fed is hiking rates is because it is comfortable about the demand outlook. And if the US demand outlook is fine, and we think European demand outlook is decent, we think China's demand outlook would be okay on the back of policy easing then why are we so worried about Asia's outlook in general? Think about the bank stocks around the world. They're rallying. Why? Because they feel that a high interest rates environment is only a normalization. It entails a good kind of curve steepening, which allows banks to make money, keep giving out loans, and that itself would be a positive impulse for the overall economic dynamic. So that's my sort of you know, vantage point. I mean, if you think about rest, risks, of course, there are countries that are highly indebted, of course, there are corporations which will see their spreads widen as opposed to compress. But as a system-wide dynamic or narrative for 2022, we ought to think in terms of strong demand causing rates to go up, not strong, uh, higher rates causing demand to go down. Okay. And, and then there are higher rates in, in the U.S. itself. Um, how does that uh, impact demand in itself? It, it, kind of, it will kind of have a counter effect and, uh, on asset markets. Well, as far as the equity market is concerned, mm -hmm. given that they're characterized by extremely high valuation, I'm talking about the US, yeah. particularly the tech space. I think the market's verdict is clear. Over the last four or five weeks, as we've seen expectations of interest rates rise, we've seen a massive sell-off in tech stocks. And if the Fed keeps on communicating higher rates and quantitative tightening, that will be the uh, par for the course for the rest of the year. That does not necessarily mean bad things for asset markets, particularly with respect to equities, all over the world, valuations in Europe, valuation in Asia are very attractive. And I'm beginning to hear portfolio managers start talking about how it is time to put on some risk in Asia. Uh, and, and therefore, on the equity side, you could see a bit of a bifurcation where you see a uh, value from growth rotation in the US, whereas in the rest of Asia, rest of Europe, we see overall uh, pickup in investor sentiment. Housing is one area where higher interest rates are an unambiguous mm. negative. And yep. we're beginning to see that play out all over the world, whether it is in Singapore or in the United States. Okay. 
Great. Okay, but we'll get. We'll, I'm sure we'll get uh, uh, more into that. Uh, but you, you you didn't touch on China though. <laughs> you avoided that. But we'll, we'll get Bert to comment on that. Uh, uh, but what worries you about China? I mean, the real estate sector, its national debt, especially in the corporate S O E segment, uh, the financial stress in China. It is also focused more on building domestic resilience and uh, addressing inequality issues with its dual circulation and common prosperity strategies. In that sense, uh, it is a slower growth by design, just what it needs, albeit with negative impacts on the region. Well, you're, you're right. Uh, let me first make one uh, remark on the global growth. Uh, yes, global growth is coming down. But mind you, 4.1% is still a very decent growth rate, and it's it's uh, about a percentage point higher than the average over the last 60 years. So, so and 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 even higher than over the past 10 years. So, it, it's a normalization of growth. It is not a a collapse in growth in any means. And China is a little different. And China came out uh, last year a little different than I think they expected, or many people expected. Uh, 8.1, it was in the end, but uh, some say it might even have been a bit lower, uh, in part because China tried to do a, a lot of things. Indeed, they tried to introduce a major new policy concept, the, con uh, the, the common prosperity, and nobody quite knows what it is yet, but it's clearly going to be a very different direction. Second, they, want to, they wanted to correct uh, the, uh, 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 if you want, the, the risks in the real estate sector more broadly in the banking system or in the financial system by uh, uh, explicit targeting a lower leverage ratio on the macro side, but specifically on real estate. And uh, that probably went a little bit too far uh, and a number of companies tripped over. And, and if you want, that's caused uh, some of the major slowdowns. Uh, in in the real estate sector itself, but also a knock-on effect on local government uh, and local government investment, simply because they rely a lot on land sales, and it's the real estate companies that buy the land, and they were, uh, in the final two quarters, they were almost absent. So uh, I think uh, the Chinese authorities are now a little bit uh, less comfortable with the the current level of growth and they want to see it a bit more and they've started to signal, all right, we're going to loosen up a little bit on the monetary side, uh, no longer a target for deleveraging, if you want, on the macro side, uh, the, and the reserve re uh, requirement a little bit lower, and now there's been interest rate moves as well. Uh, not sure whether that will mean a, a very it's not all still relatively small, so it doesn't mean it's a massive in, uh, increase in liquidity. But on the fiscal side, which was already supposed to be proactive, but it wasn't that proactive last year, I think we will see more. And yes, we've heard this emphasis on big infrastructure as being the driver of growth. So it's not a return to a real estate driven growth. It is, a, it's, if you want, a, a, a doubling down on the infrastructure growth. Uh, I do think a number of things will need to happen before that actually works. And specifically, this whole me mechanism of real estate, land sales, local revenues, local bond, government bond sales, that has been a driving machine for, for infrastructure finance, including, by the way, high-speed rail. A lot of the high-speed rail is financed by local government, not by central government, not even by the railway. So there's this joint ventures made between the railways and local government. So you need a strong local government revenue base in order to pull that off. 
from my assess assessment, and I'm not the only one, uh, uh, some things need to happen in the fiscal sphere. The central government needs to be more generous in terms of giving a bit more tax base to, to, to the local government and a bit more transfers. And then it can leverage that money to get more infrastructure investment. So a number of policy steps would still need to fall in place before I would be comfortable with the uh, with the projected uh, uh, expected growth of around five, a bit higher than five, people say. So it might go even below five. Great. Thank you, Rupert. So, so you see China doing more on the fiscal side and it's already starting to ease up on the, on the monetary side as opposed to what the rest of the world is doing. Um, any comment uh, from what Tamu mentioned earlier about you know, uh, the, the Fed uh, you know, tightening well, some more? So, and, so, I mean, China doesn't need to be very nervous about uh, in, increasing, increasing interest rate worldwide. Uh, they are a net provider of savings to the world. Uh, and, and clearly, the, actually, the financial sector is, is in okay shape. I can't say it's doing great, but despite all the turbulence in real estate, uh, they have enough reserves to cover any, any potential losses that might come from that. Uh, uh, China is going the other way, indeed, and that would probably mean, as, as Time War said, would probably mean that we see a bit of a weakening of the RMB, which helps China gaining some mm. out of out of net exports. Frankly, that was a big driver last year. It sits uncomfortable with some of China's own objectives, where they, in a way they want to move away from this export dependency. I don't think this year is actually the year in which that is going to happen. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, and uh, we'd like to get uh, Alicia back on the on China, but also to respond to what Tamu mentioned, the, the consensus view that you know, interest rate will go up and, uh, in the US more aggressively and, uh, and uh, how would that impact uh, uh, Asia? And, and also uh, your view on China in particular, uh, the step is taken to de-risk in real estate, financial services, uh, and also in, in some emerging areas like DeFi, cryptocurrency, as well as the tech sector in general? Well, higher rates in the US uh, are affecting as far as you can see that from the long end of the curve. So even, you know, uh, whoever is right on how many hikes, you are still already seeing the market driving that. But let's not forget, real rates have never been as negative. Yeah, I mean, they're just literally collapsing because of the very high inflation in the US. And real rates are important for investors as well. Uh, they're important for foreign direct investors, you know, thinking uh, ahead and uh, with, of course, their own inflation expectations uh, down the road. So although the US may look more appealing nominally, it may not look so appealing in real terms. And I think that that might be the reason why we're seeing this puzzling, uh, strong renminbi, uh, uh, you know, while um, uh, we were having the PBOC cutting and then immediately after the 4% growth for the fourth quarter, well, how, how come? Well, because maybe, you know, people are thinking, well, let's look at real rates and, and the difference is, 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 not, um, is not going in the same direction as we think. So, so in other words, although in principle, we should see less inflows into China because of the narrow interest rate differential is now at 100 basis points rather than 260. So, you know, it's, uh, it might not be as clear cut. 
we also have to think that the market is now discounting stimulus. So people are cheering, whether it's in Hong Kong stock exchange today or more generally. So that is a counter force because we had very low equity prices in China and Hong Kong 2021. So, so maybe even if we should be seeing less inflows and a weaker uh, renminbi, it might not happen. Yeah, because of uh, of the stimulus and again real mm. rates, and that in a way is is it could be also the case of the rest of the region because uh, China is such a supportive um, engine as we've learned, especially in 2021 in terms of uh, imports uh, for ASEAN, and in uh, and again that gets into the idea that yes, the U.S. will be hiking and we're all scared, but I think who should be scared is very high, I mean, really high yield, uh, especially US credit, to be frank, because again, Asia ha uh, plummeted, especially US dollar high yield because of the real estate sector. So, you know, we are, we've already done our, our bit. I think that's, that's the, the reality. And uh, I worry, however, to, to put a little bit of a negative here uh, about some frontier markets. Many are not in Asia. Some are emerging and big, like Brazil, you know, or, mm. or, or for that matter, Turkey. But in Asia, we have some frontier markets that we we may need to, you know, think about whether Sri Lanka, Pakistan, others. I mean, I'm sure others know more than me about this, but but I just want to say that I see that more of a. I don't know how big the risk. I'd like to hear from. I think uh, Taimu wanted to add, so happy to hear from from him. So, Alicia, I mean, I, I fully take your point on board on that. I, if I may just add two points, uh, one to reinforce her point on the equity side. Uh, look, we have seen um, a case of foreign investors not being interested in a stock market and it doing very, very well. And that country is India. In 2021, India had a record run of its equity prices and the entire rally was uh, taking place while the foreign investors were a net seller of Indian equities. You may quite see a similar phenomenon on China this year, where domestic sentiment, as well as Southeast Asian sentiment with respect to Chinese stocks, turn around and, and uh, props up prices where American investors, either because they don't believe the China story or because of geopolitical reasons, choose to remain somewhat reticent about investing in China you could have a situation like that where you don't see massive inflows and still see a really, really good return on the Chinese markets. Uh, we have already seen that play out elsewhere. Okay, great. Uh, I'd like to also ask about the, the Chinese tech stock, right? So, so there's kind of a draw of Chinese tech stock that have earlier done their IPOs and in, in, in NASDAQ and all, they've kind of pulled back from there. And, and when, you know, that stems on both ends, right? On, on the US side in terms of uh, all the you know, official announcements about Chinese tech and, you know, uh, and also within China itself, the clampdown on, on the tech sector. Um, how do you see that uh, playing out? Do you like me to do yeah, that? Yeah, Tam, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Tamu and then maybe Alicia and then uh, Oleg. Yeah. Yes, and I and after they're done or before they're done, you know, I would yeah. also like to hear Bird's view on this issue. Uh, okay, mm. my two cents on this is the following. Um, the tech regulations were um, draconian. They took the market aback and we have seen tremendous amount of value destroyed. And we also had this additional complication of listing in the US and having to delist and come back to China and so on. But some of the cleansing that we're seeing in the Chinese tech space is under the guise of the kind of reforms that Western policymakers have been dreaming about for years and not have had the political capital to implement. 
going after oligopoly power, uh, pushing hard on data privacy, uh, trying to reduce the profitability of sectors that have huge unfair advantage on data and market scale. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you hear Lena Khan in the US NBC mm. talk about, but not being able to implement. The Chinese have gone out and done it. So in, in some ways, and I think Bert and I have had this conversation once before, is that some of the liberal democratic uh, ideals for how big tech should be dealt with, the Chinese have basically gone and pursued that agenda. Okay. Of course, they did it in a very heavy handed manner and probably could have been done in a more seamless market uh, supportive way, but maybe they don't care. Okay, um, we'll then bring a bird into that, that, that discussion. Well, I, I uh, fully agree okay. with, with Timor, but just one addition is that I now see the risk more coming from the US side and the regulations that make it impossible for, for ADRs to be, to, be, to be used as a vehicle rather than further regulations on China. Uh, the way I read the tea leaves on the policy pronouncement with regard to the internet sector, I think the storm is dying down uh, and there are lots of opportunities as well. You, and the, there is a, a drive to create those world-class players and you can't do that by shackling the world-class players completely at home. Uh, so I believe that there is some upside on the Chinese side. I said the risk is now more on the on the regulatory sphere in the US. Okay, great. And uh, Oleg, uh, could you also share your perspective on uh, China, uh, China's increased scrutiny and regulation of the tech sector and uh, and how is how is that impacting uh, you know, technology around the world, for example? I mean, a lot of Chinese techs are, are being used uh, not just in, in, in China, but you know, increasingly in Southeast Asia and in some of the emerging markets there. Right. Um, that's interesting because uh, I, I could mention that there was a paper uh, coming from 2021 prepared by BCG uh, about the digital banking in Asia. And it appears to be that uh, out of the uh, more than 200 digital banking entities around the world, um, about 5% only being profitable. And most of them are coming from Asia. So uh, they share something common. Uh, and uh, it's, not, it's not only about the technology, but how they approach their customer niches. And uh, let's say that they still have a strong brand. They still have a customer recognition and they have the ecosystem advantage. And probably this is the uh, most visible one for the rest of the competition, uh, because um, most of the profitable players are actually backed by big, big tech. Uh, and this uh, ecosystem advantage uh, creates a wide reach uh, with the customer base and the platform itself. Of course, also there is a couple of additions in terms of financial services. And um, if we talk about the competition, uh, from uh, from fintechs and digital entities, it's always it's always a question: uh, what is the profitable model, uh, and what is the sustainable model? And it appears to be that um, most of the profitable entities actually big in lending and financing services, uh, and we we think that uh, pretty much similar to the traditional banking institution, they they still do the same thing, but in a, with a different package. And uh, we also understand from a technology perspective, uh, as long as we're a technology company, that uh, building this super app, uh, that's a common 
from a term in the industry, uh, when we, you are able to extend your app uh, with more partners, with more services, not necessarily uh, connected to the financial services per se, uh, that will be the winning factor. And uh, they are showing to the rest of the world uh, that this model works. And of course, also the technology uh, plays a big part because they, they started from the ground up, they haven't used anything uh, ready uh, and out of the box, they build them themselves. And there is agile organization, there is a governance and uh, uh, also the scalable and flexible technology that they're using. So uh, I would say um, China, Japan, Korea, uh, they show us a couple of examples how to build the proper uh, profitable business in digital banking. Uh, and if you if you ask me about the competition, um, then probably that's that's not a competitive scenario. Uh, but uh, traditional financial institutions need to look at the experience, how how they achieve that. Mm -hmm. It's still it's still more or less uh, banking experience. So it's financing some lending products, buy now, pay later, uh, and uh, connecting. Connecting multiple partners and uh, creating an ecosystem for a customer to keep the customer, to satisfy, to meet the customer needs uh, from the single app. And this is what they're doing. And yeah. I would say uh, that the Asian experience is uh, that that's a benchmark for the market. Uh, as coming from a technology perspective, uh, they, they have everything. Uh, that that other players need to look at really, really seriously and take into account. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, Oleg. And 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 it's true in in China when they have been uh, very innovative and uh, world leading in some of the use of technology. For example, in AI, machine learning, and even in blockchain. Uh, but what the increased scrutiny and regulation has done is that it's brought China tech more into parity with technology companies around the world in terms of now they are being uh, scrutinized and, and uh, being regulated in their use of data, for example, you know, uh, concerns over data privacy and, you know, and the use of technology like AI uh, and ethical use of those. So, so uh, and and uh, that is, I think, an interesting uh, area to look at. Uh, but turning the focus back into uh, the banking industry in Asia Pacific, uh, I want to kind of bring Eugene into the discussion. Uh, Moody's issued in, in December and a stable outlook for the industry. Um, now, uh, how, how do you see the outlook given the, the continuing uh, volatile COVID-19 environment uh, despite increasing vaccination rates, but and also the emergence of new variants, um, has anything changed in terms of your outlook, uh, Eugene? Yeah, th th thank you so much, Bunting, and again, pleasure to be on this forum, uh, and thank you for having me. Uh, so yeah, you're right. In December last year, we published uh, a so-called uh, outlook for banking uh, banks in in Asia Pacific, and it was a stable outlook, meaning that we expected credit conditions fundamental credit conditions for banks in Asia Pacific to be fairly stable, right? And th there's a number of factors underpinning that view, uh, and a lot of them uh, are, are, are holding and, and uh, holding as of now. So the first one is the more entrenched economic recovery uh, in Asia Pacific, right? So 
following, uh, again, as you mentioned, Boomping, higher vaccination rates, you know, a lot of the countries will be on a, on a more firm recovery rate uh, in Asia Pacific, right? Uh, the second one is a fairly stable, uh, long quality that we expect uh, in Asia. Uh, I mean, we all know that there wasn't a lot of um, NBLs recognized uh, during COVID by the banks because there's a lot of forbearance, there's a, there's a lot of uh, restructurings, but, but our view is that most of such loans will, will, will be performing and won't bring a lot of new risk to the bank. So yeah, NPLs will increase, but, but just a bit. And, and the uh, credit reserves that the banks already created during COVID as part of IFRS 9, for example, which is the accounting standard uh, applied in most systems. So, so that uh, provisioning buffer is already very significant. So that covers any future uh, NPLs that, that might materialize. So that, that's another supporting factor. Um, Another factor we look at is, is, is profitability. So if, if banks less, you know, if, 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 if the loan quality is, is fairly okay, we would expect uh, credit costs for the banks to, to normalize or go down really uh, in the next couple of years. And by credit cost, I mean new provisions as a share of loans uh, that the banks have. So uh, also we expect the credit cost again will return to, to pre-COVID levels. Uh, so that will support bottom line profitability of the banks. Now, another important or key driver for profitability is, is obviously policy rates, right? And on that front, you know, even in December, we were not really expecting any, any hikes in the US uh, for 2022, but, but now that, that, is, that, that view has changed. So we expect three hikes this year in the US. We also expect, uh, I guess, more hikes in, in select uh, uh, markets in Asia Pacific. Uh, so that in itself uh, might have further positive implications for bank net interest margins, right? Uh, and ultimately, if we also see uh, a steepening of yield curves, um, uh, further progress on that. So that will further support bank profitability because again, banks are sensitive to short-term rates, but they're also far more sensitive to longer term rates, right? So if the yield curve is steep, uh, there you go. That's an ideal scenario for your profitability as, as a bank. So, so overall, I guess my, you know, our view hasn't materially changed. Inflation should, should, should come down a bit. Um, but, but again, the uh, interest rate hikes, particularly in Asia, uh, will, will progress and that will support uh, bank profitability. Okay. So, so yield hike will support uh profitability in terms of uh, increasing margins, um, the impact on, on credit quality itself, uh, MPLs increases, you don't think is that material, nor the, the, in terms of uh, impacting demands for credit, for example, given higher rates. Yeah, I think every time there's an there's a expectation of rate, yeah. rate, rate hikes, the, the view, okay, that, that's that's a positive for margins, but what, what is going to happen to those marginal borrowers? Will, mm. will they be able, be able to service their debt? And, and I think um, certainly there might some some pain for, for the marginal borrowers, but we don't expect that to be excessive, right? And, and also, I mean, in Asia, you have systems of some emerging markets where household debt or corporate debt is very, very high as a share of GDP. So, I mean, that's not, not a new development. So, I mean, there will be some marginal borrowers who might not service their debt, but, but again, any rate hikes will come from a low level, right? 
mm-hmm. and, and if NPLs materialize, banks have already have pretty good buffers um, in terms of already created provisions. Um, so that is a strength for uh, for Asia. Okay. Now, in, in your report, you also mentioned the competition for uh, incumbent banks coming from uh, digital players, and also uh, in, in, in that regard, and also uh, risk that comes increasingly uh, from having a bigger digital footprint, for example, uh, cybersecurity and, and so on and so forth. And uh, in, in Singapore, we, we see some, you know, <laughs> some, some kind of no, uh, pretty note, notable incidents. Uh, could you talk about how, how this will kind of reflect into 2022, uh, increasing digital services, digitization, and how banks will kind of uh, respond to the increased risk as well? And how big yeah. of a risk do you see? Yeah, I think we'll take this. There's a few uh, kind of long-term, play, long, long-term mm. trends at play here. And one of them is is, is the uh, technology uh, aspect and, and disruptions that are brought by uh, new entrants. You know, it could be super apps, it could be the likes of uh, buy now pay later companies. Uh, it, it is the payment space with uh, you know digital currency. So there's a lot of disruptions that are uh, playing uh, against the banks, right? Uh, so that. You know, we were. I don't. I don't have a frank answer here, but this could mean that banks would not be able, maybe, to recover to their full profitability that we have seen in 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 in, in you know, well, before COVID, really, uh, because their margins will be kind of gradually eroded by by competition, right? And and on top of that, banks themselves have to have to innovate heavily and invest uh, in 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 technology and talent. To, to, to keep uh, you know their competitive edge here. So there's a number of factors that play that will, I guess, limit bank profitability in the long term. The other secular trend I wanted to mention uh, that we haven't really touched on uh, is ESG, right? So what's happening is there's a lot of scrutiny from investors and, and regulators alike around uh, greening the economies and, and, and you know softly or even hardly pushing banks, you know, to get out of certain industries. So I think there's an interesting development in Asia where we're seeing, um, you know, advanced economies obviously doing a bit more on that, including the, the regulators in advanced economies, as opposed to emerging markets. So there could be a case where advanced uh, economy banks in Asia are kind of perceived as greener uh, in the coming years, as opposed to, um Emerging market banks that, that continue to originate a lot of this business. I mean, you can take think of coal in Indonesia and, and similar lending exposures, right? So there might be a growing gap between EM banks and and uh, advanced economy banks in terms of kind of ESG perception, and that could could drive up a bit of credit differentiation. To be fair. Okay, great. And uh, I'd like to bring also uh, maybe Bert into this discussion on. Uh, sustainable finance and this whole uh, issue of, of climate change risk, right? The, the transition to greener finance and um, in in China, for example, you know, during COP26, it was singled out for, for not doing enough to, you know, uh, to, to kind of bring down emission levels and, and stuff. And uh, although the, the pronouncement within China itself is that they are doing a lot uh, to kind of Make finance greener, but is it 
and now being done in China, and, and how do you see that space developing? Uh, for for example, in, in in green steel, for example, right? Yeah, I mean they, they are one of the leaders, and you know, and it is not just lower lower you know uh, a core or, or ingredient, but also the manufacturing factor uh, processes are becoming greener. So that's uh, still one of the, the the bottlenecks in China, if you want. But mm. the, the the commitments are very clear. It is, you know, uh, peaking of CO two before before twenty thirty, net zero by twenty sixty. They're, they're by and large cast in stone. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, catching up on green finance, China has a long way to go. But at the same time, China is also big. They have it's one of the largest. Uh, green bond markets in the world, the green standards of the People's Bank are really quite high. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, the, there's been a, a bit of a bulk of some evergreening of some of the financing in the past. I think going forward, that is increasingly more difficult. The space is very, very big. I mean, if you look at, there's been estimates by Xinhua University on what would it take to go to net zero by 2060. And you come to an amount of something like 100 trillion RMB, which is sort of more than one GDP over the next 40 years. Uh, that's an interesting, first of all, it's a big number. Second, it's an interesting number. So it means that a lot more green financing will have to be developed. There's a number of technological bottlenecks that need to be solved. So as you say, mm. some of the manufacturing still runs right now on coal. There needs to be an alternative. Uh, there needs to be some leapfrogging in technology. But also, and infrastructure. Uh, well, from a macroeconomic point of view, mm. you would say this is rather than building more houses or building more high-speed rail, this is a perfect macroeconomic tool for China, i.e. you can accelerate or decelerate a little bit the investments needed in the green economy. And I see maybe not this year, but uh, in the next couple of years, I do see that transition happening. I mean, it's all uh, high-speed rail is great, but if you already have 40,000 kilometers of it, another 20,000 is probably less useful than the first 40,000. But that's the logic of, of, of investment there. Uh, so, so alternative means of having big infrastructure finance on tap to stabilize the economy is going to be big. So I, I actually think that there's going to be a real growth industry, industry. green finance, thanks. Okay, thank you, Bert. And, and from Tamu perspective, for, for the rest of Asia, in particular, Southeast Asia is a bit behind in terms of you know, greening the economy, uh, for example. But you know, take, take, for example, DBS Bank, in, in terms of your support for green finance and uh, the, the pledge that the bank has been in terms of target that has said uh, set for uh, uh, sustainable finance has been uh, increased over time. Uh, tell, tell us a bit about how you see that uh, greening the economy uh, uh, opportunity for Asia. Well, there's a lot going on in that space. When paying, I mean, the intersection of technology and climate change, I suppose, is the area where a bank like DBS is particularly excited about because then you have green finance and green technology all coming together. Uh, one example would be a country like Indonesia that is interested in nature-based solutions, meaning they sequester millions of acres of forest for which they receive compensation. And then this becomes a source of carbon credit. Well, you can conceive of an NFT that contains all the information of that nature-based solution that gets traded on CIX, which is the carbon impact exchange yeah. that DBS has uh, participated in the formation of. 
And then you all of a sudden have this beautiful marriage of cutting edge technology and cutting edge climate finance. So the area is very exciting. And as Bert pointed out, um, whether it is China or Singapore, uh, there is a limit to growth through the fossil part of the economy, where there seems to be just the beginning of the growth that can be realized through green transition. But herein lies one important issue. And this is where uh, the one thing that Eugene was talking about in terms of profitability of banks, mm. uh, we need to tie it together, which is the only way the E part of ESG works if the relative price of carbon emitting products go up. Uh, short of that, the consumers are not going to just, you know, out of their good nature, start, you know, recycling and doing things. They would do it because it is in their economic interest to do so because there is a tax and the uh, polluting stuff is more expensive. So any sort of carbon pricing, any sort of carbon tax that one can envisage, whether it is a corporation or it's a bank, from a societal welfare perspective, they should pass it on 100% to the consumer because that's the way changes will happen. Uh, and, and so we, because, you know, at the end of the day, the environment related aspects are at the retail level. Of course, companies should also become responsible, but the demand for their products is driven by the retail sector. So therefore, I think the government has a role to play in making sure that actually the relative price adjustment happens at the retail level. So I wouldn't you know, worry too much about profitability of banks and the financial sector in general, because I would expect 100% pass through. Okay. And the biggest challenge, obviously, is a, lot, a big part of the economy is currently still brown, right? Still, you know, fossil fuel and, you know, and uh, coal and so on, so on, so on. It's that transition. Uh, you still need to support your, your existing client, even as they move towards that. And, you know, and, and possibly some of the expectation of that transition is how, how real is that, you know, in terms of uh, 2020, 2060 and so on, so forth. Well, I mean, 2060 is, I think, easy for most politicians to talk mm. about because they're yeah, not going to be around. <laughs> but uh, hopefully some of us will be around to see, you know, whether these yes, countries yeah. live up to their promises or not. Uh, but on the issue of climate transition and the costs and arrangements associated with it, I think we saw it play out very, very vividly in China last year. The year began with very strong, strict targets on electricity production by provinces. And these provinces completely, totally were incapable of living up to those Perfect. quotas on one hand and living down their uh, expectation of growth. And as a result, we had these blackout issues okay. and, and massive disruption. So you have to have redundancies built in. You have to have a, a bridge. Otherwise, you know, you just cannot jump from uh, fossil to renewables. Okay. And uh, Alicia, uh, earlier uh, in some of our questions on supply chain, for example, you see some of the, the risk in supply chain uh, uh, persisting and and one of that risk itself is is uh, will come from this transition as uh, some of the supply chain uh, players as they move uh, from you know to 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 more uh, sustainable alternatives. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, supply chains are actually producing fifty percent of total emissions. So we keep on talking about electric vehicles, but that might be story in in Europe in the sense that transportation is more important in Europe as a source of emissions than it is for China, where most the, the biggest the bulk of it is actually the in, in industrial sector. So, but but. It, so, so, so two things are happening to answer your uh, your question and and chip into what was discussed before. Uh, the value chain will be probably untouchable. 
carbon uh, emissions uh, related because there's so many other things that are happening that are making the whole thing very difficult yeah where it's zero covid policies and and what it entails for shipping costs and air cargo etc to um you know the, the whole reshuffling that was happening even before so in in terms of uh, import ties from the us and 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 companies own uh, appreciation of uh, ad hoc risk, which could be flats in Thailand as opposed to, you know, so 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 all of that plus uh, the need to to uh, decarbonize uh, value chains. And on that, uh, I, I want to add the fact that the way we've designed our carbon pricing is such that it's not very clear. I mean, there's a consumption side of it, but there's also a production side of it. And Asia happens to be on the production side. So the question is, who pays the consumer, the producer? How do we bridge that? Um, and for that, of course, and I fully agree with the fact so, that we need a, a carbon pricing, if not the same, at least a carbon pricing somewhere, and then we can bridge it. And that's, of course, the European proposal of CBAN, uh, this carbon border adjustment tax uh, or mechanism. There could be others. Uh, I'm not claiming that's the best one, but I think we need to think through the, the, the cross-border consequences. But let me finish with uh, Bert's point on, uh, maybe next year we'll have a green uh, investment. Why not this year, Bert? I mean, like like I'm thinking, <laughs> I mean, why why are we pushing this thing when we have the funds supposedly yet to, 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 to do this fiscal stimulus? Are we going to wait uh, to the point where there's no money for fiscal stimulus? Because I just don't understand if we're taking this 2030 um, target for peaking emissions, why we are not starting as of now? I mean, I, I just can't mm. understand it. Yeah. But you may have a good reason that I'm missing that. There's a global conundrum, right? Uh, when China wants to start it, you know, the, the US wants to start it, but couldn't get it started. It was not a policy recommendation, Alicia. It, I'm, I'm just trying to be the realist here. I don't see that much emphasis on it. I see much more emphasis on traditional yeah. infrastructure and to some extent also back to some support for real estate rather than quite a radical uh, redirection. And in part, I understand because that radical redirection would also have implications for the industrial structure that supports those investments and that, that you just cannot invent overnight. So it will, by necessity, will have to be a bit of a gradual process. Okay, great. And, uh, okay, so, so uh, back to a question that I asked earlier, which I, I don't think uh, uh, any of you kind of attempted to, to answer, which uh, uh, asset bubbles, especially in the equity markets, right? Especially reaching unprecedented levels, uh, do you see a major kind of collapse or a, not a correction, but you know, a, a major risk event in 2022? Uh, and how big of a risk is to the financial systems? Uh, what steps do you see you know, regulators and um, the industry taking to mitigate it? There are some quarters, uh, some contrary investors that see that. You know, we're going to have equities lose 80% of its value uh, in the coming months because of you know, inflationary uh, worries, increase in interest rates, and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, our guests seem to be quite sanguine about it. <laughs> Maybe Tamil. 
um, you know, let's you know think about which part of the equity market we're talking mm. about. So as I said earlier, that clearly uh, growth stocks, particularly in the U.S., are vulnerable given their exceptionally high valuation. Mm -hmm. It's not a bubble the way a bubble was in 2000, 2001, because at that time, companies were largely pre-revenue and they were really driven by speculation. This time, you could argue that big tech is, of course, serious and substantive, and there's no question of you know, uh, bubble-type you know, uh, risks as far as big tech is concerned. But there is a lot of small tech. There's a lot of action in the startup scene. There's a lot of action in the private deal-making scene where we see silly valuation, we see exceptionally compressed spreads, and those things have room to widen, to sell off without any question. Would that leave collateral damage? Well, it probably will not leave as big a collateral damage as it did in 2007, 2008, simply because corporate and household balance sheets are much healthier. Again, I'm talking in the context of the US. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but but you know, that's the main concern that you know, the largest equity market in the world, is it at risk of a major dislocation, which would then lead to substantial stress on corporate and household balance sheets? And the answer is a qualified no. But at the same time, higher interest rates come with two risks. One is you see pressure on currencies in emerging markets, you see debt sustainability problems for countries that borrow in hard currency and so on. And the second is a self goal by the, or own goal by the Fed, where it goes a bit too trigger happy. It talks a bit too much about QT and higher rates and it succeeds a little too much mm, and yep. brings down the growth dynamic altogether in the second half of this year and undermines that uh, labor market that is so keen on protecting and nurturing. So that's the risk that if you end up um, taking uh, neutral rates at a point where it starts to undermine growth dynamic, undermine expectation, then of course you have a problem. Of course, right now the market is on the other end of the spectrum, which is the Fed is behind the curve, that we have you know, massive amount of inflation year after year ahead of us. Uh, but that's not the super savvy part of the market. The super savvy part of the market, which is the tips market, which is the US 10-year treasury market, is basically saying normalization, no more than that. So I would focus on that risk, which is excessive tightening, uh, too much hawkish talk, which then brings this edifice down off this nascent recovery that we have. Mind you, six months ago, we were looking at dire straits, and now mm -hmm. all of a sudden we think that output gap is closed and we need to have significantly higher rates. Um, probably not the most cohesive transition. Okay. Totally. You just if, if, if I just yeah. add, if I just add on the banking side, uh, thing, uh, you know, I, I guess the uh, banks in Asia don't really invest a lot in, in in equities, right? So that's that's the good thing. They don't have big exposure, but they yeah. do have huge uh, holdings of bonds, as as you would expect. So high yields would 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 definitely uh, lead to lower valuations, fair value valuations of uh, of of bonds, and and banks in Asia. I mean, typically invest maybe 10% of their total assets, something like that in, in, in fixed income security. So, you know, to what extent do, those exposures are hedged, that's, that's a very mixed bag. So we would expect uh, a negative repricing of securities that, that could affect uh, banks as, as, as yields go up. Okay, great. Uh, 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 Alicia? Would you have a perspective, not just for the U.S., but let's say for in China and so on? Uh, 
um, the the we talk about the correction in the real estate market, right? But uh, there there were you know concerns that it will kind of ripple into other sectors as well. I mean, to the wider, not just some of the major players, but you know, uh, a more financial stress in in China. Uh, well, I I think we are on the other side of the story now. As Bert hmm. said, we had the China. I, I think Shanghai Pudong Development Bank already buying uh, developer equities, and I think other policy banks. It's not going to happen. Uh, I think they're going to support developers uh, blindly now. I think I mean like whoever fell, there you go. But whoever didn't, it's like a you know, like drawing a line because the contagion was real. I think we started to see even uh, investment grade developers, you know, suffering. And I think that was beyond what could be accepted. So, and by the way, banks would not have been the, uh, the main casualties anyway. And uh, I'm sure Eugene has the data too, mm. because um, actually loans to developers are rather limited. I think it's 1.5. That's what we calculated of the... Of the portfolio, so so it was more about um, really pre-sales and and you know like suppliers uh, that that were screaming, let alone um, uh, dollar bondholders. I think those might still probably you know go to restructuring, Evergrande and beyond, uh, Fantasia, others. But the sy systemic risk, I don't see it. We're in a party mode now. It's stimulus, you know, and and uh, mm. how on earth would you? couple the the restructuring with that stimulus is no i maybe maybe in the future maybe like the green uh all together possibly but not now not now okay great so uh now we we talk about some of the uh, uh competitive strength like uh in terms of uh, uh increasing competition from digital players fintech d5 players uh that both oleg and eugene talk about um uh, what other key transformative trends and risks should major industry players be watching out for? Uh, I like uh, Oleg and uh, maybe uh, to to kind of uh, speak on this, and then uh, Eugene to follow before we, we go to our last question. Okay. Um, yeah, there are there are some distinctive trends uh, going right now, and we see that. Uh, there is a substantial amount of interest in in the area of cryptocurrency, DeFi, and all sorts of. But uh, let me just remind you uh, that uh, during the uh, second second term confirmation hearing in Congress, uh, Mr. Powell said that the cryptocurrency report is coming in uh, next two weeks, uh, next coming new weeks, and. Um, uh, the digital dollar may coexist with stable coins. So uh, this opens up the discussion about what DeFi will look like. But at the same time, he uh, added that, uh, well, it's more going to be an exercise in asking questions and seeking input from the public rather than taking a lot of positions on various issues. Although we do take some position, that's a quote. Um, so uh, it seems like there is a lot of uncertainty still uh, in terms of DeFi and how it will shape the industry. Uh, and also there is, a, there is a common opinion in the industry that the coming uh, Olympics event in China will be something like a real life test scenario for their CBDC initiative. 
Um, but I would say that for the traditional uh, um, banking industry players, uh, it's not actually a threat, it's an opportunity. Um, and we, we also hear about the lot of things going on with uh, the booming NFT domain uh, and also metaverse is coming in. There will be lots of, uh, lots of opportunities there because these are uh, new niches. And uh, of course, for the every other upcoming niche, uh, the transaction fees will be high in the beginning. Uh, so um, banks really need to look in, in the, into this uh, direction. But I will also uh, probably stress um, the audience attention on uh, uh, something different because uh, as long as we talk about DeFi and uh, CBDC, uh, there is there is one scenario that's uh, considerably uh, interesting for the governments all over the planet, and it's not one country. Uh, it's a set of countries that are talking about um, creating the uh, stored value accounts in central bank infrastructures that will have this digital currency. So it means that these accounts will be stored in central bank and will be uh, not manageable by commercial banks. Uh, by some estimates, this will be substantial amount of money moved into central bank uh, infrastructure for that reason. And of course, this these accounts will be also used to uh, distribute uh, some social benefits, support, and uh, you call it helicopter money or uh, universal basic income. It's actually the same thing. During the pandemic times, um, it's it's really huge. And if you support the population on a massive scale and you don't charge for it, so there is a substantial amount of uh, uh, money and income uh, will be uh, distributed and managed without commercial banks' participation. So uh, this, uh, this could be kind of a threat, uh, but it's one of the scenarios that's being considered. Um, so... Um, I would I would say that the glasses have full. Uh, so they, there is a there is a lots of opportunities coming in terms of entertainment industry and uh, the recent acquisition by Microsoft uh, also may happen very soon and it will shake the industry and it will create also lots of opportunities by building the specifically prepared payment rails for metaverse and um, and NFT. So I would say um, that the competition, of course, there is in place, but uh, from a technology perspective, uh, we see that technology is more or less ready to support the traditional banking players. And uh, uh, from our perspective, the only thing that traditional banking institutions lack these days is political power, uh, political will to do something. So uh, it was a common opinion uh, just a couple of years back that you, you can't really transform the traditional banking institution. You just need to create the greenfield. Um, but it's not anymore. The technology is there and mm. you, can, you can do that for the traditional bank if they really want to do that. So okay. this, this, this is the common thread, I would say, for, mm. for the industry. Okay. This this emerging kind of competition from the decentralized uh, uh, space in, in Singapore is very interesting because uh, the MAS seems to be encouraging a lot of 
that innovation in this dig, uh, decentralized finance or digital finance, I would say, you know, uh, is, is set up, uh, you know, even Tomasi has invested in, in digital uh, exchanges, DBSS also. Um, how, how big of a competition? Is it complementary to traditional banking? Uh, uh, Taibu, uh, uh, maybe uh, ask you first, and then Bert, maybe to give us a perspective from China, because China is pushing out its own you know, uh, uh, EU and uh, possibly working with the commercial banks uh, to push that out. But at the same time, it's also clamping down on any form of cryptocurrency um, and yeah, uh, uh, kind of initiative. Time to, to you first. I don't know yes. if it's a fair question for me to be asked because <laughs> yes. I will of course say they're complimentary. Yes. <laughs> um, look, I think DBS's journey in the last 10 years shows very clearly that banks cannot sit on the side. Banks don't, if they don't invest heavily on the tech transition, they will lose out to their competitors, which is why you hear J.P. Morgan investing $12 billion mm. over the next three, four years to sort of, you know, ramp up its tech capabilities. DBS, uh, starting from a very small scale, has also spent over a billion in uh, sort of, you know, taking it into the cloud space and supporting a series of initiatives, whether it is Partior, which is a blockchain-based trade credit facility, or the CIX that we just talked about, or a variety of other uh, approaches, including the digital exchange. So, of course, the bank wants to be on the side of all the disruptive innovation so it is not left behind. And I think that is uh, the motivation of all bank CEOs out in the world. Some are just more ahead than the others. Some are more visionary than the others. But on the um, ECNY issue, I will let Bert talk about the China aspect. I just want to share with you one insight that I derived from a regional central banker recently, which was they had great degree of discomfort with respect to stable coins. Because the view was that if you have large tech companies introducing stable coins and that are operating across borders, that would start running risk of dollarization in various emerging market economies that don't have the exorbitant privilege of printing hard currencies. And that makes sense. If it is easy in a country like India or Nigeria to send money across the world and do transactions using a stable coin, everybody will start circumventing their rupee and the naira or whatever currency they operate in. And that would be a huge headache for the central banks of these countries which pursue capital controls. Uh, so I think that this one issue with respect to stable coin, uh, the regulators are gonna have a very, very strong, uh, difficult time uh, tolerating. Okay. And uh, but well, I'm I'm not necessarily expert in this field, but but first one footnote on what time was said. I mean, there is still something like sovereignty, and even though there is a digital RMB or a digital dollar out there, it doesn't mean that you have to accept that as a payment uh, inside a sovereign state or even with actors that are based in a sovereign state. So, I think these are two decisions. Uh, the the digital RMB is is pretty much ahead. It's the, one of the major countries that has a digital uh, currency now in pilot. After the after the Olympics, we will know more. There is this international aspect to that, and I, I do believe that China sees this as a conduit for the internationalization of the RMB. Not the most decisive factor, but it's a nice to have that if you have easier transactions, cheaper transactions. I just made my payment through DBS internationally, Time War, so I know what it costs. Um, <laughs> so if you can do that with a digital RMB, 
that's definitely an advantage. And and uh, but if if there is a digital dollar, that would also be, uh, of course, acceptable currency. Uh, China has said, look, uh, we don't want we don't want private actors to reap the rents of that. And clearly, uh, the domestic actors, the Ali Pays and the ten uh, ten cents of Weixing of the world. Up till now, they've had quite a bit of rents from the from the digital payment system. I think they're going to lose some of that. But I'm with Oleg to say that look, that that whole uh, uh, ecosystem that Alibaba and and Tencent have created is far bigger than just payment. So I, I don't think they they won't lose all their market. They'll just lose a little bit, a little bit of the crumbs in the payment system. Uh, but but. Uh, I think the, you know there is a certain advantage for being first or being one of the first, and in that sense, the the Chinese RMB is is ahead. I think the banks inside China are behind, but they're behind in in, in a number of ways. So maybe at first they were happy that there would be a competitor for Alipay and for for Weixing, but now they may say, well, actually, this could also cost us. Our margins and in, in 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 the payment traffic for for companies and so so I think it's a very dynamic field, a very interesting field. I appreciate that the Chinese authorities don't want to have anything to do with crypto, uh, given the the negative connotation that I see in uh, in in the use of crypto. They want to know or be able to know what transactions were made with digital currency, and again, I think as a as a sovereign nation, that is a fair. Uh, that is a fair wish to have so and a central bank currency is a means of getting there thanks okay and then at the thermal point there is kind of a, a kind of a real guard against uh, what some of the stable coins are doing allowing uh, individuals to transact uh, circumventing their central banks and uh, uh, Eugene I was wanting to ask you that, that to pitch in on that question as well uh, yeah yeah I mean we, we covered we covered a lot of uh, you know, tech themes that are um, disruptive for banks. And I certainly mm. agree with everything that has been said, but but let's not forget about the traditional credit themes that has been going on in Asia for Asian mm. banks for, for, for many years. And, you know, one of them is high leverage, right? In the economy, uh, private sector leverage in particular, right? So as, as, as rates go up, uh, marginal borrowers m might be at risk of defaults. Um, the other one is, is is high property prices and easy money or, or cheap cheap rates, low rates have propelled property prices. I mean, not only in Asia but globally mm. as well. Yeah. I mean, on one side, it's good because your uh, as a bank, your LTVs go go down, right? But, but also, the higher it goes, the the bigger the risk, the potential risk of a yeah. correction, and and that correction could be abrupt. So, I mean, those are the things we we watch as well uh, on top the traditional risk on top of the uh, new risks, if you will, related to uh, to the technology space uh, as well. Okay, and uh, I, I think what we discussed, you know, in, in terms of going forward, uh, in terms of overall, because of influent, uh, inflationary pressure, um, uh, asset, you know, price increases, this whole um, uh, impetus to to manage that through rate highs, through you know quantitative uh, tightening, um, you know for, from the different perspective we hear that it seems that uh, the, the the different economies and, and the different governments tend to have that factor in and uh, are preparing the industry for that. Um, 
the risk is always you know uh, some of this uh, policies kind of overreaching right uh, kind of creating unintended consequences um, final question right so in terms of any miscalculation uh, the, the risk of a hard landing right you know we, we want everything to, to kind of land softly uh, uh, what's the risk of some of this you know going awry uh, in 2022 uh, if I can just ask it everyone for, for, for your perspective. I mean, uh, uh, from Eugene's perspective, everything is, is stable, right? I mean, everything is factored in uh, provisioned uh, against credit loss is very strong within the banking industry um, and, and so on and so forth. Well, maybe uh, again to start with Eugene and then we'll just go around. Yeah, and yeah I guess as a closing was... comment. Right. So very quickly, I know we're kind of out of time, but the the uh, you know if there's 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 a more material increase in interest rates that that creates, I guess, uh, problems potential problems for uh, emerging markets in Asia with um, kind of weak external positions, right? So those markets might economies might have to jack up rates more meaningfully, right? Um, so so I think that that is a scenario where we're we're a bit concerned again that that could lead to capital outflows and, and put pressure on, on, on the domestic currencies um, and lead to, I guess, some pressure for FX loans as well. So I think this, this is one um, aspect I would be watching carefully. Okay, great. Uh, Tamo. Well, we haven't talked too much about geopolitics and I'm sitting yeah. here with a geopolitical expert, uh, Bert, <laughs> yeah. So, but I would say that, you know, we have a lot of tension between nuclear powers around the world and, you know, the sort of, uh, job owning that's going on, you know, you sort of worry that, you know, sometimes, you know, whether mistakes would be made or not. So we have issues between Russia and the West and China and the U.S. and India and China. And then, of course, the perennial uh, uncertainty around Iran's uh, nuclear deal, uh, which seems to be going in the wrong direction as well. So, you know, we I think we're so busy with the pandemic the last couple of years, we haven't worried about these things, but they're very much clear and present. Uh, with respect to hard landing, I think we already sort of talked about the one serious uh, risk, which is that Fed sort of, you know, over tightens, yeah, uh, either actually over tightens or conveys to the market that it is likely to over tighten. And that alone does the trick of undermining confidence and brings the market crashing down with the economy to follow. The third thing is, of course, China. You know, we live in Asia. We feel that China sort of, you know, knows what it's doing, which is not a feeling that is at all shared by our friends in the West who think the Chinese don't know anything. Truth is probably somewhere in between. Uh, but uh, China has its work cut out. Uh, we are talking about a year where we have the pandemic still not sorted out. Uh, they have to capitulate on the zero tolerance policy sooner or later. They have to allow Hong Kong to breathe because it is imploding as we speak right now, uh, given the uh, very, very uh, tough measures that are in place. And it has unresolved issues vis-a-vis -vis the West, vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, the Quad, all sorts of stuff, right? So economic issues and geopolitical issue makes China's life complicated. And again, things going wrong here and there, which creates convulsions, political or economic, is, is non-trivial in my view. And then, as you heard from Alicia earlier, that beyond Asia, there are a bunch of very fragile emerging market economies out there, from Lebanon to Ukraine to Turkey to Brazil, uh, Argentina. Uh, things can go wrong in any of these economies, and that can create contagion, which then you know, hits our shores in the form of currency volatility in the form of capital flow volatility. Typically in the last 40 years, every Fed hiking cycle has been associated with some degree of a crisis in emerging markets or developed markets or both. How can it be any different this time? Okay. Great. 
Thank you, Tamu. And Talisha. Well, I just know that um, Blinken is in Berlin and that says it all. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we could have uh, an event. We had troops from Canada sitting already in Ukraine. I mean, it's like, I think this is a major issue for the global economy. Uh, uh, it also has a spin-off, I mean, potential. <laughs> Let's add this word, potential spin-off in Asia, which people like to compare, which is Taiwan. So if nothing happens mm. in Ukraine, um, you know, that opens the door. We've heard this many times. So, you know, frankly, I, I, I cannot agree more that geo geopolitical risks are extremely high this year. We had North Korea, you know, like just, you know, why not? Yeah, trying to, I mean, everywhere. But but I, I think the key is starting with Ukraine because that, that by now, um, uh, looks real, uh, and and uh, and and I think you can sense. I mean, uh, Europe is is really faltering in this idea of what, are, where are we? You know, strategic autonomy. Should we do this? Should we not? And that hesitance adds to the complications. So, and and that's not far from Asia because there are many ways in which this can affect Asia, in my view, just by the mere fact that the reaction to that will could be extreme in China. I, you know, we don't agree with this, and then that could really create uh, what we usually call two ecosystems for tech, but it could be two ecosystems for politics. It could be, you know, and and that has impacts on banks because at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. By now we're all interrelated. So, so how that will affect um, Asia's banking sector is to be seen, but I don't think it's to be taken lightly. Okay, the geopolitical risk uh, would be the kind of long tail risk that you know you can't really put your finger on in terms of the exact impact, but definitely will have economic impact and financial fallout. Uh, but. Uh, uh, China, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, <laughs> how big of a risk? Well, so the geopolitical risk was already referred to, and I do think we, we need to think more about it. And of course, right now, Ukraine is at the, at the very short short list. But in the longer term, the US-China tensions, they're, they're not going to go away um, until, until the US has a domestic policy agenda, more coherence, uh, and more agreement among, among the two sides of the aisles. Uh, I, I see the US continuing to uh, um, in a way, take China as a uh, uh, um, a, common, a, 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 a common a common enemy of both Democrats mm. and and, and conservative and, and Republicans. Uh, so that that is a, a bit of a tension. There's been quite some action on the military front, not on the economic front. So and we don't know the exact implications yet. But Quad is stronger. AUKUS is now something new with with nuclear submarines in Australia. It's gonna take 20 years, but nevertheless, there's, mm. there's, there's some big, some big uh, uh, actions going on there. The second, and that is a much more short term, I don't think we should forget about COVID. And it's not just uh, China clamping down uh, on, on, on cities that, that, that have uh, two people with a sneeze, but it's also that because of the low uh, vaccination rate in a lot of developing countries, uh, the, there will be new variants coming up, and the next variant may not be as as benign as the Omicron variants uh, that that we have just seen. And of course, in the longer term, you see others as well. It's not over. We need a lot more policy actions to get to, to get the risk minimized. There. Thanks. Okay. Great. Thanks, uh, but uh, and. Uh, 
uh, yeah, the the COVID, you know, uh, risk is still there. And the uh, last one maybe to Oleg. On. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, working working out of Europe being to very close to the center of all yes. events around that tension. Um, I would say, uh, and I would mention uh, one specific subject because it's related to financial industry and payments in general. Uh, and it's not about Ukraine. It's about the possible threat of uh, disconnecting Russia from SWIFT. Uh, and this is what's being discussed really uh, seriously in the industry um, that if it happens, it creates uh, complete and global and common distrust in the payment rails, uh, not only in SWIFT, but in other mm. uh, payment rails that connect countries together, connect the world together. Uh, and we were talking about the DeFi and um, uh, some, some people even say that if it happens, then probably the next year we'll be living in a different reality and everything will be decentralized from a financial perspective. Uh, so, uh, um, it's not it's not really uh, uh, the existential threat, but it's uh, this a world changing event that may happen. And um, from from uh, the payments perspective, from the financial industry perspective, uh, we may we may be living in a different world after that. Uh, so, uh, uh, summarizing everything that already said, um, well, there is a number of ge geopolitical tensions and scenarios that we could face uh, this year, uh, but hopefully uh, most of them will never materialize because um, it, will, it will create lots of threats. Uh, it will create lots of challenges, lots of issues, and uh, everybody's on the same page that we, they, they don't want that. Okay, great. That, thank you, Oleg. That, uh, that is a, a kind of a development that, that is quite concerning as well. Uh, in terms of a, a global kind of utility excluding uh, a country <laughs> out of its use. Uh, now, uh, when we talk about uh, various uh, areas, uh, uh, some of the known risk uh, that you know, you've all been looking at in terms of uh, COVID, in, in terms of inflationary, inflationary risk, uh, increasing you know, uh, debt on both uh, public as well as uh, household debt and uh, measures to mitigate them through uh, 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 quantitative tightening at uh, interest rate uh, uh, heights in the U.S., in emerging markets, uh, China taking a different track, uh, uh, really uh, starting to, to st stimulate its economy and uh, you know, uh, reducing uh, statutory reserve requirements and so on and so forth. Uh, all, all this are kind of factored into a lot of the banks uh, you know, uh, calculation, but still there, there are a lot of um, a risk that is kind of hard to quantify uh, around uh, a geopolitical risk uh, uh, as we discussed. Uh, so uh, in the coming year, uh, even as the banking and economic you know, uh, outlook are relatively stable, as uh, Bert mentioned, even at 4%, they, they are you know, historically uh, healthy uh, economic growth rate. But still, there are significant risks uh, that can persist, and uh, and and it takes a, a miscalculation or a, uh, a wrong, a misconstrued perception of the intention uh, uh, 
to cause uh, a significant outcome. So uh, th those are the risks that we can you know, expect to see more of in, in 2022 as it plays out. For now, I'd like to thank uh, Alicia, Paimu, uh, Bert, Eugene, and Oleg for your insights and uh, your analysis. And, and we hope that our audience has found this uh, session insightful. Uh, I certainly have found it very uh, uh, insightful and useful. Uh, and uh, if any of our audiences miss any part of the session and would like a playback, do visit the Asian Banker Retail, uh, no, sorry, Radio Finance website, and you can download a recording of this session as well as some of the past sessions and to find out more uh, about our upcoming uh, session and to register for them, uh, you can visit that site. And until the next event, we wish you all a great day. Thank you. And thank you to our panelists. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.